Today, we are launching a new series, Good Gift, Bad God. Now, this past week, I got to talk to my daughter who lives in Arizona. There we go. And uh, <laughs> in Arizona, she's living there. She goes to school. And she said something I've never heard her say to me before. It was profound. Dad, I need money. <laughs> no, what was funny was she needed money. She needed to get some clothes because she's going skiing. I didn't know you could ski in the desert. But I guess there's some mountains and there's snow there. And she's going skiing for the very first time. And I can see some of y'all judging me right now. I can see it. Because y'all are like, what kind of father wouldn't have already taken their children to ski? And I'm just going to say, you just keep your mouth shut, you bougie church. <laughs> but the truth is, uh, I've taken her fishing. Thank you very much. But uh, Susan and I went skiing on our honeymoon. And um, it was awesome. And it was memorable. And I have no pictures to show you. But a couple of years ago, she looked at me and she said, Brandon, I think she was feeling nostalgic or she grew up skiing. She said, Brandon, take me skiing. And I just kind of got, you know, guys, I kind of got something in her voice that was like, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> and when she speaks to me that way, like I'm listening as if it's from the Lord through her mouth to my heart. Three weeks later, we were on the slope. Three weeks later. I, I'm proud of myself for that. And uh, though, you know, I, I was trying to make it cool and stuff, and I, I'm a big, I wanna capture the moment, so I had rigged up my iPhone into my, my ski jacket, had a little zipper right here, and I had the iPhone on like a waterproof case, and then I had rigged it where it had like a tether, you know, so if I dropped the phone, it would just bounce right back up. And I had gotten it to where I slipped it into that, pocket, zipped it up where it was really tight, and I was, you know, recording myself as I was going down the slopes, okay? Some of y'all are like, you know they have GoPros for that. You be quiet, you bougie church. <laughs> and, so, and so I put it in my, in my little jacket, and would you like to see? Yeah, check, I've shared this before, but check this out. This is me skiing down, and, and, and right about this time, there's somebody up on a lift, and they're looking, and they're saying, man, who is this Olympic skier that is gracing us? And I am flying down the mountain, and people are like, he's going so fast. How does he do it with such grace? It's stunning. And then I just kicked some snow out to try to stop him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's me busting, and that's my phone buried in the snow. I'm digging through the snow to try to find the tether, trying to grab it. Okay, there I am. And, but I want to make sure it'll still record, so I'm blowing on it. And um, I guess I had gone so fast and, that I had just left Susan in the dust. And so I'm kind of looking around for Susan, and I'm getting myself together, and I'm trying to get the phone back in its spot where I can continue to record. And, and I'm getting up, and I'm checking myself. Susan kind of comes up. And she does a real quick, like, how are you? You know, are you okay? Because I guess it must have been a glorious bust. <laughs> you know, are all the bones okay? And then I kind of look around, and she's saying, hey, are you good? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I mean, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you for caring. Oh, see ya. <laughs> there she went. 
I'm like, she like stopped for two seconds and just kept going. There she goes. So that's my ski story. And you say, what does this have to do with church? Maybe I just wanted to share my story. Or maybe like life, you know, sometimes like that image that you just saw, we're skiing down life and we're thinking we're doing maybe a little better than we are. We're thinking we're a little more graceful than we actually are. We're thinking that we're impressing others and we're not. And we're one messed up. I mean, I'm kicking it out, like digging my heels in, trying to spray some, some snow, you know, like, a, like I used to do in fifth grade with my bike. <laughs> you know, some of you skiers know you don't kick out dirt on your hind legs, on your back of your heels, right? That's the biggest mistake. That's what I did. I leaned back when I should have leaned forward. Some of you, you're leaning back when you should lean forward. You've got bad form and a crash is coming. You think you look good, you think you're flying. Others can see it, you can't. You're in a blind spot and a crash is coming. Can I just say something a little prophetically to us here? Welcome to Keystone. Our culture, our country is headed for a crash if we don't figure out how to traverse life the way God has designed us to traverse life. We may look like we're flying, we may look like we're soaring, but from heaven's perspective, we have bad form and a crash is coming. Some of us are rolling in the snow today. You're covered, you're digging yourself out right now from a financial problem. You're digging yourself out because you've been inattentive too long. We're in Romans chapter one today. And today we're gonna kinda do an overview to set up the whole series. And we're gonna be in Romans chapter one verse 25 for the next several weeks. This one scripture is so theologically rich that we're just gonna sit in this one scripture for the next few weeks, and we're gonna explore the corners of our life where we may have bad form, where a crash is coming. What we're gonna learn from the Apostle Paul today is something we need to apply every single day of our lives. So let's read it together, Romans chapter one, verse 24. Therefore God delivered them over, so this is, Verses one through 23, he's talking about humanity, he's talking about mankind, and I'll pick up, just to kind of pick up on that conversation, therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Verse 25, this is our home base right here. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever, amen. Today we're in Romans one, and we're in a series, Good Gift, Bad God, and, and if you wanna write down kind of a thesis statement, it's this, gifts are good. Gifts are good, but they make bad gods. When you take a good gift, and you make it godlike in your life, a crash is coming. And there are two ways that we do this. Two ways that we crash and burn. There are two foundational truths that Paul just gave us 
that you need to evaluate yourself. You need to check yourself every single day. Two things. And the first we see, problem number one, we swap truth for a lie. The first way that we crash is we swap truth for a lie. Now let me give you a little background. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He wants to go see the church in Rome. He's not in Rome, he's writing to Rome. He's writing from a city called Corinth. Corinth, at this time where Paul is there, it kind of feels like a new city. You know, there's some cities you go to and it feels old. Rome would have felt that way. Some cities feel like established and, you know, really old. Like if you ever go to England, you go to London, it kind of feels well-worn in, feels deep and rich, like a mighty oak. Or, or you go into Oxford and everything feels aged beautifully. Uh, you go to walk down the street, Back Bay, Boston, it feels, you know, you're just looking at homes where people lived there in the 1800s, 1700s. It's amazing. Paul was in a different kind of scene. Paul was more in a city that felt new. Now, Corinth was actually a very old city, but only a hundred years before they had rebuilt it because it had been totally destroyed and abandoned. And so for a hundred years they had been rebuilding the city and in their kind of world, a hundred year old city would have felt really new and there was a lot of wealth and they were building a lot of stuff and there was new technology and new infrastructure that the world had never seen before and it was just really, really cool and they're very wealthy and it's like all the new stores, all the new places, everything's cool, everything's new, everything's crisp, everything's clean. If you were to go to Corinth in that day and today, you would see this massive, huge mountain of rock. It's the most prominent scene in the whole city. And at this big, huge outcrop of rock, there on top during Paul's day, they found it, they've excavated it, was the temple to Aphrodite. One commentator said that there were a thousand priestesses who served in the temple of Aphrodite up on top of that rock. Most people have said that's a little too much, probably not a thousand, but the truth is a whole, whole lot. Now the thing about the city of Corinth, like the whole Roman Empire, the reason I tagged on that last scripture is the number one crash and burn of their day for the whole Roman Empire was sexual immorality. It was the number one way that they were missing it completely in their day. And so Paul is addressing the number one need in their culture as he then goes on to address all the other needs as well. Even as you read the book of Romans, he starts by talking about their sexual immorality because it's the number one way they were blowing it. But then he goes and starts talking about every kind of sin you can imagine and then even goes toward even the Jewish audience where they have their own sin of self-righteousness. So he's just basically saying we all have sin, we all have brokenness, and we all need Jesus. But he starts by talking about sexual immorality. Well, the reason is those priestesses would come down off of that rock every single evening and they would engage in sex, ritual, cultic sex, with the people in the city of Corinth every single night. So maybe not a 1,000 priestesses, but hundreds of priestesses would come down. Can you imagine that rhythm of their life? It just was a carnal, pagan, sexually perverse culture. And that's the way it was for all of Rome. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment, that particular uh, illustration and application of how you take sex, which is a gift, and you exalt it to God-like status, it breaks really, really bad. 
So that was Corinth, and that's where Paul is writing from. So he sees all of the sin in the Roman Empire. He's writing to Rome, where they are, they're consumed by their own issues. He, comes from, from, he had come from Jerusalem, where they had their issues of self-righteousness, and as he looks at it all, he says, the problem with us all is this. This is a human problem. If you wanna know why you do the things you do, if you wanna know why you don't do the good things you know you should do, there's two reasons. Problem number one, we swap truth for a lie. What did he say? Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What is truth? This is an important conversation. We're gonna spend a lot of time on this because this is a conversation we need to have. What is truth? God is saying they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is important. Now, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my age. I am a Gen Xer. I am not a millennial, as you thought. I'm a Gen Xer. I wish y'all could hear what some people say from the, from the floor. They're like, oh, no, yeah, yeah. You know, they're just mocking me. Thank you very much. But truthfully, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, and whenever I was doing my doctoral work, one of the areas of emphasis that I focused in on was postmodernism. Postmodernism, because that's the philosophy of my generation. And I wanted to reach my generation. And so in academia, they were saying the number one blind spot for the Gen Xers in the house is postmodernism. So I begin to dive in. Well, what is postmodernism? And at this point, as I, the more I learned about postmodernism, I have to admit, I was kind of like, I don't know. I mean, are this just a bunch of academics saying that this is what's going to happen? But none of us really do that. You know, sometimes you study things and people have big theories and philosophies of the way it's gonna be, and you're just kinda like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I was skeptical. Because one of the main tenets of postmodernism, <clears throat> one of the main tenets of postmodernism was a decline of truth. It, it really is that there is no absolute truth. Back then, I kind of doubted that anybody would ever really believe that there's no absolute truth. And today, I have to tell you, our philosophy has come home to roost. We're living in a world where we do not believe in absolute truth. Let me give you a definition for absolute truth. Truth is this. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. It doesn't have to be hard. Truth is that which is real. In other words, you're at Keystone today. This is really happening. You're not in a matrix. You're not dreaming. You're in a chair. I'm on a stage. I have a mic. You don't. That's true. Right? The truth is we're in the great state slash republic of Texas. That's true. <laughs> I had to do that. I had to do it. I just... The truth is, we are in Texas. The truth is, you, you know, you could just come up with what corresponds with reality. But have you heard, maybe somebody's being interviewed in a talk show, and they'll say this phrase, well, my truth, this is my truth, and then they begin to tell. Or they'll say, well, tell us your truth. You know what that is? Postmodernism. It's basically saying, you get to create what is true? You get to say what is true even if it is not corresponding 
with reality. That's what you get to do. You get to say, I am a furry cat. <laughs> and in today's world, we will cater to that thought. What is your truth? Can I give you a little heads up? This thought process is not new with my generation. This at least goes back, it's a spirit that goes back about 5,000 years. Early in the Bible, they would say this, especially in the book of Judges, they would say this, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. Same spirit. We call it postmodernism with the, with the, you know, with the little pipe in our hand, postmodernism. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to feel. Don't tell me my feelings are wrong. Don't tell me my preferences are wrong. Don't tell me my desires are wrong. Don't tell me I'm wrong. In other words, there is no authority over me. I will do what is right in my own eyes. I will create my own truth. I will do what my heart tells me to do. Are you with me now? And we are coming down the mountain and we look like this. And the longer we hold on to this sense of no truth, you make up your own truth, understand this, we're, as a culture, we're just at the front end of this, of this conversation. The ramifications of a culture that abandons truth is violence. It is the unraveling of civil society. Our wonderful world will not be recognizable as long as the church is silent on the subject of truth. Let me tell you something. What did they say? God has a truth. This is God's truth. You can count on it. It's your authority. You can count on it. I'm telling you, listen. You say, but there's stuff in this Bible that I don't feel. And I'd say, give your feelings to God. There's, there's, there's the way that they talk about money or the way they talk about relating to others or the way they talk about intimacy or the way they talk about love, that's not what I desire, that's not what I feel, I want something else. And I'd say, oh, my dear friend, with all the love in my heart, can you see it? God loves you more. He loves you, he created you, you can trust him. You can trust him with your desires, you can trust him with your affections, you can trust him with your love, you can trust him with your romance, you can trust him with your money, you can trust him with every square inch of your life. Truth is that which corresponds with reality, and guess who gets to define reality? The one who created reality. To say I create my own truth is the ultimate act of pride. You are setting yourself up to be the interpreter, and, and can I just, can I just be Uncle Brandon for just a second? I kind of already have, maybe. But can I, thanks, Laura, I heard you over there. <laughs> Laura's been laughing at me for a long time, I know that voice. 
Can I just say that when you reject God's truth and you say, I, I don't, I don't, and you say, I believe I'm something different than what God says. I believe I'll, I can figure it out better than what God says. Please understand what you're doing. You are rejecting God. You are rejecting God. And in some ways, if you feel like that God got it wrong, God's wrong on this one, you are putting yourself in a position where you are over God. I'm right, God, you're wrong. Now I say that gently, with love in my heart, but please don't mistake it for a lack of firmness. This is a dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. And you know, you don't check your brain at the door following God. Following God definitely is faith, but it's not fantasy. Following God is faith. That means there's a leap. That means, <clears throat> okay, God, this is where I'm at, and that's where you say I'm supposed to be, and I don't know how I get from here to there. I mean, this is scary right here, God. This little gap right here, it's like a Grand Canyon for me, and I don't know how I get from here to there. Faith is saying, but God, I believe you, and I trust you, and here I go. That's faith. But it doesn't mean you check your brain at the door. It doesn't mean that you live in fantasy, and faith doesn't mean that you live in fiction. I'll give you an example. Actually, I believe the longer you look at the Lord, and the longer you look at his truth, the more you'll be connected with true knowledge. You know, when you look at, at, at the universe, do you know how marvelously complex the universe is? Do you know how, and the, Apologists call this the fine-tuning theory of the universe. It's one of the explanations for the existence of God. That when you look at the universe, uh, scientists will tell you that if we were off by a percentage point, like the distance of the earth from the sun, our gravitational pull, um, if, we were, if we were where Mars is instead of where earth is, we wouldn't be here right now. We'd be burned up. If we were closer, we would be frozen up or closer we'd be burned up, further we'd be frozen up. That we are in the perfect position for life to occur. And then when you start to look even closer on planet Earth, the factors that create life are stunning. And that's just looking at the cosmos. There's also fine-tuning of bio biology. When you begin to look at the human body, how marvelously complex our bodies are. You're like, yes, it is. No. Everybody, not just those of you that are ripped. Everybody in this room, every body in this room, your body is wonderfully made. It is a marvel. We have not been yet to be able to create a machine that rivals the complexity of the body that came through nature. It's God's gift. How? This complexity. And let me just try to get it even closer. The odds, listen, the odds of this complexity coming from random chance. It's unreasonable. I've got, this is just a normal watch. It doesn't do anything fun. It doesn't self-wind. It doesn't do anything fun at all. It's just a very simple little white watch, okay? If I were to take it off and drop it or it just were to fall off my wrist and drop into the woods, why am I in the woods? I don't know, but just hang with me. <laughs> Say the watch is in the woods and then you the next day or the next week, you're walking in the same woods and you see this watch laying on the floor of that forest. 
you pick up that watch and you look at the trees and you look at the sky and you, you look at the grass and the plants around, you say, oh, marvelous sky, oh, marvelous trees, oh, marvelous plants that you produced something so complex. Did the trees produce the watch? Did the grass produce? Now, you're looking at me like, yeah, duh. But let me help you. Did you know your mere existence is far more complex than this little watch? Yet we stumble upon humanity and we don't want to think that there was some kind of creator who put us here. It'd be like throwing dice a thousand times. And every time you throw the dice, every single time, snake eyes. Now some of you gamblers are like, yeah, yeah, whoa, I want that dice. <laughs> Others of you who are not gamblers, you're like, what does snake eyes mean? Just hang with me. What I'm saying is every time you roll it, it's the same thing every time. Two ones, every single time, every single time. What would your logical conclusion be? They're rigged. They're cheater's dice. Right? It's just logical. That's not hard, that's not a leap of faith. Truth is that which, what, which corresponds with reality, cold hard reality, that's which is so obvious. The odds of the universe being this complex and, and, and life being able to exist in such a complex environment that it all came through random chance with no person guiding it, no person creating it. Listen, it's stunningly ignorant. But you know, sometimes we get so smart we become foolish. We want so bad there to be not a God. We want so bad that not a, there's not a God, there's not an authority over my life. Don't tell me how to live that I will spend my life trying to find ways to explain this complexity outside of we have a good God who loves us and created us. Let me tell you something. Let's just apply it to your life. This means that God loves you so much you are not mass produced. You're not on some conveyor belt of humanity, next, next, put the head on, next, next, put the shoulders on, next, next, give them size 13 feet, next, next, next. You are not mass produced. God says in the book of Ephesians, you are painstakingly produced. You are affectionately held. You are crafted by the master artisan, God himself, and he loves you, and he made you, and he cares about you. And someone that can create you, and someone that can create all of this, someone that can give you a mind to see, to, to take in the world, he is a good God, worthy and powerful enough to tell you what reality is. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Know this, if we reject the truth of God, here's a danger thing, in the snow, I'm crashing, you are vulnerable to deception. If you reject the truth of God, you are vulnerable to deception. We, we don't like to be deceived, right? It's really brutal to walk in deception. You know, one day you wake up and you realize, I was fooled. Has, has any of you ever like met a con artist? Earlier in my ministry, I actually had a con artist in one of my ministries, it's crazy. Um, and he said he was a Power Ranger. I, I don't, why that? It's just, I'm not, I'm not lying. 
And, and everybody kind of went along with it because it's so crazy. Like, who would ever say that, right? And then we would say, like, who would ever say that I'm a power, you know? And so you're kind of like, oh, that's cool. We got a power agent. <laughs> and, and it was crazy. People, like, flocked to him a little bit. And, <laughs> and, and then the day came where we kind of found out that he had been lying the whole time. And people felt pretty silly. Now, I'm just, let me just help you. When you've lived in deception, and then one day when you realize what's true, you're gonna feel really bad. You're gonna feel really foolish. And there's a kind of come a day where God will reveal, ultimately, undeniably, that his truth was the authority over your life. Please do not live with any longer in deception trying to help. Here's what I know, if, you, if you're currently vulnerable to deception and not living under the authority of God's truth, you're constantly reaching for another podcast for kind of your philosophy of life. You're constantly reaching out to another blogger for your philosophy of life. You're constantly reaching out to another book for a worldview. And so we become fanboys of a popular speaker, popular author, popular blogger, popular podcaster, and we become disciples of that speaker, and then finally, they do something that's like crazy because they're human, or they have beliefs that you're like, oh, and you feel silly. You feel disenchanted. It's because you were deceived. Can I give you a word? If you'll let God be your number one authority for all knowledge and truth. Then you can, you're free to go to a podcast, you're free to go to a blogger, but you line it up against the word of God. He is the ultimate filter. And one day, if somebody disappoints you, you say, well, no big shock there, they're not God. And I never abandoned God as my first truth. And whenever they veer away from God's design and you begin to realize, they, I'm not sure they ever believed this anyway. You know, the more I hear, I'm not sure that they really are into the Bible. Then you can just say, Band boy, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> band boy, boy band, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> Another problem when you reject the truth of God, and I'll hit this quick, you're left to create an alternate reality, a delusion. You're left to create an alternate reality, a delusion, and it's a lie. Here's the danger of a lie. Susan and I, in our parenting, that's one we do not do. You, you do not lie. We don't do lie in our parenting. With our kids, everybody makes mistakes, uh, this, that, or the other, but if we catch you lying, that's like big for us. And I think it should be big for you because what the Bible says about lying is that our enemy, the devil, is the father of lies. And when we lie, it's not a funny little white lie or a pattern of funny little white lies or roll your eyes and say, oh, that's just Charlotte. I don't know what... That's just the way she is. Now, you don't roll your eyes and just dismiss it because they're partnering with something demonic. And so we don't live in lie, we live in truth. And so even like white lies, you know, it's a, it's a little chip away at your marriage when you start white lying, you start avoiding the truth. It's a little chip away when you begin to try to distance a little bit and not, not be honest about what you're doing. It's a little chip away. And, and it's actually Satan chipping away at your life you're partnering with demonic activity. 
And so be very, very careful whenever you do that. So that's problem number one, is we exchange a truth for a lie. And we're over this series, we're gonna talk about the sex lie, the money lie, the respect lie, the friendship lie, that all these things promise something and they don't deliver. When you exalt them to God-like status, they promise something and they don't deliver. But there's a second thing that's gonna land you in the snow, wrecked on the side, and it's this. Oh, let me do this before I go forward. Here's a prayer. I wanna, I wanna encourage us all to pray, okay? And it's an, it's an alignment prayer because we need this every day. God, you are my authority. I accept your truth. Just pray that prayer. God, you're my authority. So today, if I'm challenged to do something your way and it's, it's hard to do it your way, God, you're my authority. I accept your truth. And here's what'll happen. When your emotions, affections, or interests are in conflict with God's clear teaching, you're saying, God, you win. Every time. I've already predetermined, I don't win when I'm against you. You win every single time. God, your truth wins out over what I feel. Problem number two, if you're with me, say I am. Amen. Problem number two, we worship and serve creation over the creator. Did you see that in scripture? Verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever, amen. Here's a definition of worship, because when we think of worship, if you've grown up in church or been around church at all, when you say the word worship, often what we think of is the singing. Now singing is no less worship, but worship is so much more than singing. Singing is a way that we worship, that's why we call it worship and praise. Hey, it's time for us to go into worship, that's fine, there's no problem with that, but know this, the definition of worship is way bigger than just when we sing. So if it was just the singing, then when in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they sang and served what has been created instead, no. Something else is happening here. What is worship? Worship is that which you supremely value. Even the word worship is from Old English, worth-ship. Worthy, value, affinity, exalt. You carry weight. This is the, the determining factor of my happiness. I gotta nail this. You know, whenever uh, we were doing the wedding, my daughter just got married and I'm not over it. Uh, we just, <laughs> whenever we had the wedding, I said, when we were creating a budget for the wedding, I said, baby, what are the big rocks? What are the big rocks? The big rocks for the budget are the things that we wanna absolutely nail and the little rocks, we're gonna be like, ah, eh, whatever. And your big rocks may be her little rocks. But we wanted to nail her big rocks, okay? Like the dress, she wanted to nail the dress. That, that was a big rock. Some of you, it would have been food. That was a little rock for her. Food was great, but it wasn't that, you know, what a big rock, right babe? Yeah. Big rocks are heavy. In your life, there's one supreme rock that needs to be the heaviest rock in your life. It's the thing that carries the most weight. It's the thing that you assign most treasure. It's the thing that gets most affection. What is that thing? According to this, you were made to worship God. 
He alone is worthy. He alone is the ultimate value. You're made to worship God. Quickly, I wanna explain this, and, and I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on this point because the whole series really takes off from here. And we'll learn more next week and the week after that. But know this, <clears throat> God made our hearts to worship, and they were made to worship him. They were made to be constantly aligned with him. I have a 16-year-old son, and he's always hungry. <laughs> like, he ate lunch at school, he had breakfast before he left, but after school he wants to go to Chick-fil-A. So he gets a second lunch, and then he wants a snack before dinner, and then he just plows through dinner. What is going on? He's always hungry. Guess what, your heart is always hungry for worship. And your heart is made to hunger and thirst after God. And what that means is, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, taken a bite of the forbidden fruit, then what we would be like is we would be in perfect communion with God, that God would be the number one thing in our lives, that whatever he says, that would be the thing, that would be it. Everything else was below him, everything. He would be the thing we valued most. But since the fall, our hearts got disconnected and now we're hungry, we don't turn it off, we're hungry and we try to satisfy that hunger in other places. Here's where the Corinthians and the Romans were. They were trying to satisfy their hunger in sexuality. You can't read Romans 1 without at least commenting on this just a little. That the world that Paul was speaking to was brutal. I began to dive in and study it a little more and I had to back out, it's just too broken. Uh, what I learned about the Roman world in antiquity when Paul was writing, what I learned about that was it was brutal. We're talking about pedophilia celebrated. Things we would lock you up for. They were celebrated, they were in their art, they were in their poetry, pedophilia. Incest, celebrated. Rape, no big deal. As long as, as long as you were of a higher authority and you were the domineer, no problem. No problem. It was a brutal, broken, brothels everywhere. That's, that's, that's where people would sell their bodies for sex. In their rules, if you were married and you went to a brothel, that didn't count as cheating. That didn't count. So when Paul begins to talk about same-sex attraction and when Paul begins to talk about sex outside of marriage and when Paul begins to talk about all these different things, he's speaking to the world that he's looking at. He sees those priestesses coming down off that hill and he sees people depraving themselves in those brothels. And in the face of a world that was upside down, they'd exchanged the truth for a lie, God said, this is God's truth. One man, one woman in marriage that's God's truth. That's God's truth. And you may not feel it. You may not want it. You may want something else. But trust God. 250 years later, the entire Roman Empire adopted a biblical view of marriage. God won. And that biblical view of marriage has created the Western world that we live in and enjoy. And right now, it's unraveling and it's under great threat. So what are we to do with this? The problem is, the Roman and Corinthians, Romans and Corinthians, they took a good gift, sex. God's way, such a good gift, beautiful gift. Man, woman, marriage. Not man, woman, dating. Man, woman, marriage. And they took it and they said, but I wanna do it my way. 
want to do it my way. And they took the created thing and they worshiped it above the creator of that thing. We're going to see how we do that with money. We're going to see how we do that with entertainment. We're going to see all these good gifts. He's a good father. He gives you so many good gifts. We take the good gifts and we turn our back on God. We say, I want this. I don't want you. I'll take your gift, but I don't want you. And in doing so, God says, well, I'm going to give you what you're asking for, but I'm not going to be there. I won't bless it. So today, here's what I'd love to encourage us to do. Can we just stand to our feet? They did what was right in their own eyes. They took the gift, they made it a God. Here's what I'd love to do. First of all, I'd like to talk to somebody. You'd say, well, I'm ready to follow Jesus. Something about this talk has unlocked something in my life. Let me tell you what's happened. God has deposited saving faith in your heart. He's turned something on that was off and you're ready to follow Jesus. You say, how do I do it? I just be a better person? No, Jesus died on the cross for your sin. The hard work is not you being a better person. The hard work is you allowing God to make you a better person. The hard work is not you paying for the sins you've done. The hard work is believing and receiving that Jesus on the cross paid for all the sins you've done. So today's the day you say, God, I give up and I trust you if you wanna be a Christ follower. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin, conquered death so I could have real life. Could that be you today? I'm gonna invite some pastors and prayer team to make their way to the front. I want the people to be able to see the people up here. If today you wanna start following Jesus, you come forward and you say, I'm ready to start following Jesus, and we'll talk with you about that. We'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe you're here today and you say, I am a Christ follower, and I have been exchanging a truth for a lie. I've been looking elsewhere for truth and I'm ready for a realignment. I'm ready to get back to God. I'm ready to trust God again. And you wanna seal it with faith, leave your seat, come forward and pray with somebody and say, could you pray for me? Maybe you're here today and you'd say, I've been exchanging I'm truth for a lie and I've been lifting up the, cre the created thing as God in my life. Here's the word, what you worship, you will serve. If it's the bottle, you'll serve the bottle. If it's someone's body, you're bound to that body. Lust. What you worship, you will serve. How about today you say, I worship a heavenly father who made me, who made this, who loves me, who showers me with gifts and they're awesome. I worship you and serving God is the joy of your life. You say, man, I need that realignment. Come forward, pray with us today, and we'd love to just bless you. Maybe you're just carrying a burden. Maybe you want healing for your body, something going on, we wanna pray for you. Your marriage, we wanna pray for you, anything at all. Can we pray together? Father, we love you, and we thank you, God, and I pray that as we start singing, that there be a, a movement in our hearts towards you, and that there be a movement of faith that we'd say, I'm ready to reach out and get prayer from someone else. Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. In the name above every other name that we pray, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.